Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot audio ground school podcast hello and welcome everybody my name is nick from part-time pilot thank you for tuning in and listening to episode number 16 of the audio ground school podcast this is the podcast where i go through our online ground school lessons in audio form with hardly any breaks, hardly any interruptions, hardly any fluff. Just give it to you straight, completely for free on any of your favorite podcast apps. So hopefully you guys are following along and enjoying it. And if you are not, there's a lot of stuff like images, videos, quizzes that I'll talk about in reference that are in the online ground school. So if you want to get the full experience and follow along in the online ground school, just go to parttimepilot.com and click in the menu on, on on online ground school. All right, so in episode 15, we got into section four of the online ground school, and that was on aircraft airworthiness requirements. We did lessons one through three of this section, which were on required documentation, required inspections, and required equipment. Now, I think that is a very, you know, all these lessons are very important, but especially this last one for today's episode, because we're going to get into lesson four, inoperable equipment, as well as airworthiness directives. Those are sort of the last key things that you have to check for to make sure your aircraft is airworthy. So, and the inoperable equipment lesson, we're going to reference and we're going to talk about things that we talked about in the required equipment, right? So, uh, we'll get into that. So if you haven't listened to episode 15, go and check that out. Um, my voice is a little little raspy. I am a little stuffed up as well. I took a COVID test and it was negative. I do not have COVID, I don't think. So that that's good. Um, but maybe just a cold. I flew to just a little bit about me and so you can get to know me a little bit better. So I flew to Seattle the weekend that I'm recording this. I just got back yesterday. It was a quick weekend trip to Seattle to go and watch the Seattle Mariners uh, Major League Baseball team. I grew up in the state of Washington and was a, have been a Mariners fan, played baseball when I was little, watched Ken Griffey Jr. and those Mariners. And they have not been in the playoffs for the last 21 years. I think it's one of the longest streaks in sports history. And so we've seen a lot of losing, and they finally made the playoffs this year, and they got to have a home playoff game. We we lost to the Astros. 
and we lost in 18 innings. It was tied 0-0 until the 18th inning. Actually tied the record for for the longest postseason game. So games usually go nine innings. So that was twice, double the games. And Major League Baseball games are already long. You know, they're already three, four hours long. So it was almost seven-hour game that sat through, cheered for, so, and then flew back and forth. So it was very draining, and I think I may have picked up a cold or something like that and lost a little bit of my voice. So anyways, just something like that. Go Mariners. Uh, There's always next year. (laughs) We're used to saying that. So anyways, let's get to it. So that, that, that's why my voice might sound a little different, so I apologize for that. But let's get to it on Lesson 4, Inoperable Equipment. This is of Section 4 of the Online Ground School. Lesson 4 of Section 4, Inoperable Equipment. And then we'll get into Airworthiness Directives, Lesson 5. I'll probably call it quits there just because it's a good stopping point for Section 5 before we get into Section 5, which is going to completely change subjects and go to weather weather theory charts and information on weather so uh, i think we'll probably just do lessons four and five today so it might be a little bit shorter but we'll see maybe there's some good add-on stuff we can talk about to help make sense for you okay so here we go inoperable equipment the responsibility for ensuring that an aircraft is maintained in an airworthy condition is primarily that of the owner or operator So I'm going to repeat that because this might be an FAA written question. The responsibility for ensuring that an aircraft is maintained in an airworthy condition is primarily that of an owner or operator of the aircraft. However, a private pilot must know whether or not the aircraft is airworthy and what actions must be taken to keep or make it airworthy. In the event that any piece of equipment in the aircraft becomes inoperable, in other words, broken or not working, then the pilot must verify the following before flying the aircraft. Okay, now before I get to what the private pilot has to verify, what this is saying is that the owner operator has the ultimate responsibility for making sure the aircraft is airworthy, that they follow the maintenance, that they have the required equipment, that the equipment is maintained, they're up to date on their inspections, all the stuff we talked about last episode. It's up to the owner operator ultimately for maintaining that airworthiness condition. But this doesn't mean that you as a private pilot should not even care, don't have to check this stuff. That is the furthest from the truth. In fact, on your practical check ride, the f- one of the first things you have to do, the first thing you're going to have to do is show that you are airworthy and and able to perform this check flight and have all your endorsements and required flight and documentation and all that in your logbook, but also to prove that your aircraft is airworthy so you know how to do that because you also have the you have the the requirement of flying airworthy aircraft so there is it's it's not totally off your plate you still have to make sure that your aircraft is airworthy so this is what we're talking about in the last episode and then this episode as well so in the event that any piece of equipment in the aircraft becomes an inoperable then the pilot must verify the following before flying the aircraft First, check to see if the aircraft has a minimum equipment list, MEL. If it does, then this is the controlling document and must be followed. The MEL is the list and quantity of installed instruments and equipment, the quantity required for flight, and any added limitation caused by out-of-service items. 
To use an MEL, minimum equipment list, a pilot must verify that the owner or operator has received written approval from the FAA to do so. So big caveat on this MEL. So if your aircraft has the MEL, that is essentially the controlling document of what you what in what equipment and instrumentation can be not working and inoperable and you can still fly because it'll tell you you know what equipment you have to have, the quantity that you have to have working and any other added limitations. So that MEL is a controlling document if your aircraft has one, it has to be approved by the FAA. But the big caveat is that most general aviation aircraft, your Cessnas, your Cherokees, Warriors, do not have an MEL. These are mostly for larger sort of commercial aircraft that have redund many, many redundant systems. So they have a minimum equipment list, which tells a pilot, okay, this is the minimum equipment this aircraft has to have in order to be airworthy to fly. So it makes it a lot easier. So if the aircraft does not have an MEL, then the type certificate data sheet per 91.213D2I in the FARS, the manufacturer's kinds of operations list per 91.213D22, and 14 CFR 91.205 from the FARS, or any other Part 91 regulation. So we have 91.213D2I, and then we have 91 d 2 91213D2II, and then we have 14 CFR 91205, or any other Part 91 regulation for the specific kind of flight operation being conducted per 91213D2III. So basically, 91213D2II and III, those are the Roman numerals, those three sections. And 14 CFR 91205, which is generally considered tomato flames or ACA FTSE, which we covered in the required documentation. So all three of those and any airworthiness directives per 91213D2IV must be consulted to determine if the equipment is required. All right, so let me just kind of repeat that because there's a lot of numbers and FARs in there. I usually like to keep out the FAR numbers in my lessons because... Students will look that up, and it's a lot of legal language, and I, I specifically wrote the online ground school in plain English so students will remember. So I, I usually try to keep those out, but sometimes we need, to, we need to talk about them so that they can be referenced. So basically, if your aircraft does not have an, an MEL, what is it that is the controlling document? What is it that tells us what's it required? Well, it's 91, 14 CFR, 91205, and 91213D2, and that's parts... I, 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 and I, V. So, so you can go check those out. And that is kinds of operation equipment list. It's the, the day and night required equipment that we covered last episode. And it's airworthiness directives. So though the combination of those things is going to tell you what is required for your, your aircraft when it does not have an MEL. So, what you do is you first start with 91205. So that's the ACA FTSE that we went over in the last episode and the flaps at night. So those are the very, very minimum required by the FAA. Then you're going to look at if you your aircraft has a type certificate data sheet or a kinds of operations list. And this is going to be found in your aircraft's pilot operating handbook or AFM. So the 
approved flight manual or pilot operating handbook for your aircraft, whichever one it has, whichever one is the approved version, this is where you're going to find any additional required equipment outside of 91205, which is, again, the ACA-FTSE and the flaps that we covered last episode. So you have ACA-FTSE and flaps as a very minimum. Then you're going to check your POH and AFM to see if your aircraft specifically for any types of, you know, kinds of operation or anything like that is required. So, for example, an aircraft might say, when flying above... 8,000 feet, it has to have this instrumentation, right? That's just an example. That would be a kind of operation. The kind of operation is, you know, higher than 8,000 feet, and that specific aircraft has a required equipment that is on top of that, the ACA FTSE and flaps. That's just an example. Your aircraft may not have anything, but you need to check the POH and AFM to see or the type of flight that you're gonna have. Is there any additional equipment that I need? So it's the 91205, which is the ACA FTSE and the flaps, and then it's anything listed in your a AFM or POH for the type of flight you want. And then lastly, it's airworthiness directives, which is the next lesson that we're gonna get into and we'll talk about. But the airworthiness directives are basically are basically additional FARs that may require if you have a specific specific aircraft or specific or you're doing specific types of flight that the FAA might additionally require something else in what they call airworthiness directives and again we'll get to those in a sec so those three things if you do not have an MEL those are the controlling documents that you have to follow if so if you're inoperable equipment remember we said okay if you have something that's not working you need to check the MEL if you don't have an MEL you need to check what we just talked about ACAFTSE flaps, your AFM, POH, and then any airworthiness directives to see if it is required, to see if that inoperable equipment equipment is required by any of those for your aircraft. If it's not required by any of the above, then the item may be either repaired, deactivated, and placarded inoperative, or completely removed. In each case, these actions must be signed off in the aircraft maintenance log and only then is it the aircraft legal to fly. So what this is saying, and I'll repeat it again because this is important and you might be asked this on the FAA written exam, is if the piece of equipment that's not working, it's inoperable or in-op, and it's not required by any of these, you know, the, the ACAFTSE, the flaps, your AFM or POH or any airworthiness directives, then you can still fly. You can still be airworthy and okay to fly if that inoperable equipment is either repaired or it's deactivated and then marked as deactivated or inoperative it has to have a placard or something that marks it as inoperative so that the pilot knows not to use it and it has to be deactivated which means like disconnected from any other systems or power or completely removed so any part of that system any wires any plugins any lights the whole system has to be completely, as part of that inoperable equipment, it has to be completely removed. So any three of those options. You can fix it, you can deactivate it completely and disconnect it and then say it's, it's inoperative, or you can completely remove it and still be allowed to fly if that is not a required piece of equipment. And all, no matter what you choose to do, repair it, deactivate it, or remove it, 
you all have to be signed off an aircraft maintenance log and only then is the aircraft legal to fly okay so i'm going to say this just one more time if not required by either the mel or the combination of ACAFTSI, flaps tight certificate data sheet kinds of operation list or airworthiness directives then the item may be repaired deactivated and placarded inoperative or completely removed and in each case these actions must be signed off in the aircraft maintenance log only then is the aircraft legal to fly okay so now that we talk about what to do with inoperable equipment and how to know whether we can still fly with inoperable equipment we just answered that who can perform the necessary maintenance for you to fly well the FAA the FARS say no person may take off an aircraft with inoperable inoperative instruments or equipment installed unless the inoperative instruments and equipment are either removed from the aircraft the cockpit controlled placarded and the maintenance recorded in accordance with part 43.9 of this chapter or deactivated and placarded inoperative if deactivation of the inoperative instrument or equipment involves maintenance it must be accomplished and recorded in accordance with part 43 of this chapter and then that's where part 43 says that the private pilot may perform preventative maintenance so we're digging into the FARS to say, so I just repeated everything I just said, you know, that you can, if it's an operative, you have the choice to remove it, to fix it, or to deactivate it and mark it as deactivated. And we're trying to say, well, who can do this? Can, can you as a private pilot do this? Well, part 43 says that a private pilot may perform preventative maintenance. Now, there are still debates among even law professionals and pilots as to how these FARS should be interpreted, but for a student and private pilot, it's best to be conservative and assume that a private pilot may only perform preventative maintenance and that repairing, replacing, removing, or deactivating equipment does not constitute as preventative. Some forums and boards online may tell you to just mark it as an operative if it's not required for your flight, but this is wrong. The FAA, the FAR, clearly says you must also deactivate it and the act of deactivating the equipment does not sound like preventative, a preventative type of action to me. The reason the FAA wants you to deactivate the equipment is because you never know if the problem is larger than just a single electrical circuit you are concerned about. Your inoperable, inoperative equipment may be causing high voltages and wires that start a fire if not deactivated properly. So there may be, it may cause an issue down the line somewhere else if maybe you're turning on one piece of equipment and it's supplying power to that inoperable equipment and you didn't completely deactivate it, there could be a loose wire or something that is causing a dangerous situation. That is why you have to completely deactivate it or remove it. And that's why you just can't simply say it doesn't work. It is important to note that the removal would have to be performed and logged pursuant to FAR Part 43 as would the deactivation if it involves maintenance. If the aircraft is not airworthy with the instrument or equipment inoperative, then either it would need to be repaired where it is, or prior to flying the aircraft to repair station, you obtain a special flight permit, commonly known as a ferry permit. So there's this thing called ferry permits or special flight permits. These are also, if you guys remember the required inspections, we talked about the 100-hour inspection. And we talked about that you can fly over your 100-hour mark if you're flying it somewhere 
to get it fixed, this would require a special flight permit. And so basically, if you if it's not something that's required, but it's still an operative, you have the opportunity to fly it to a repair station, but you have to first get a special flight permit from the FAA. A special flight permit may be issued to any U.S. registered aircraft that may not currently meet applicable airworthiness requirements, but is capable for safe flight. So special flight permits are issued by the FISDO IFO having jurisdiction. FISDO stands for Flight Surface Flight. Standards District Office, I believe. Hopefully I didn't mess that up. Having jurisdiction over the geographical area in which the flight is to originate. An applicant for a special flight permit must submit a statement in a form. And that form is FA Form 8130-6 if you want to look it up. Uh, but as a student pilot, you really, you're probably not going to be doing special flight permits. This is more show if you... Sorry, Siri just went off on my watch. Have you heard that? Especially, you probably won't have to worry too much about it, but it is good to know that if if you do want to fly in something that is not in airworthiness condition, and that would be like with a piece of equipment that's not working, whether required or not, that has yet to be removed, replaced, or deactivated, and you want to fly it to somewhere where that work can be done, then you got to get a special flight permit. And the FAA would basically look look at your situation. You would tell them, you know, what's going on, what's what's not working, and they would say, okay, you're not currently airworthy, but you're still capable for safe flight to the place where you can get it fixed. So, before passengers can be carried in an aircraft that has been altered in any matter that may appreciably change its flight characteristics. It must be flight tested by a pilot who holds at least a private pilot certificate. So I just wanted to also state that because I have seen this also asked on the FAA written exam. Not a lot, but I have seen a couple times. So before passengers can be carried in an aircraft that has been altered in any matter that may appreciably change its flight characteristics, it must be flight tested by a pilot who holds at least a private pilot certificate. So what we've just been talking about, this preventative maintenance or these things like deactivating inoperable equipment that's not required, that would not fall under something that would appreciably change its flight characteristics. So that would not be the case. But if you were to like change, change the type of flaps on the aircraft, it must be flight tested by a pilot who holds a private pilot certificate before any passengers can be taken. So just remember that kind of threw this into that lesson because it fits with with the sort of maintenance questions and it uh, like i said it has been asked before i've seen it asked before on the fa written all right because of all of these regulations for flying it is important to keep up to date and current records of all aircraft these records are the responsibility of the owner or operator of the aircraft as a student pilot, it is your job to know where to access these records and information so that you can review them before each flight. Most of the time, these records are found in maintenance record books that include the airworthiness directives, required inspections, maintenance, and squawks. Now, you won't, you likely won't do this for every single flight. It is, however, a good, a good thing to do before every flight. Again, the owner operator is who's ultimately responsible to make sure that the aircraft is kept in airworthiness condition. But you will be required as a during your check ride to check and show the examiner all these things. So you will want to 
ask your flight school where you can get, you know, my check rides coming up. Where can I get the, you know, the power plant maintenance logs, the, the airframe maintenance logs, so I can see where all these inspections are, have been done, where they've been signed off by, by the mechanic, and I can prove to the examiner that it's all up to date on its inspections and its requirements, and it is airworthy. So it's a good thing. You'll have to do it for your check ride. It's a good habit to get into just to do, especially when you're flying a new airplane that you're not familiar with. And then it would also be a good exercise to do it once or twice throughout your flight training as a student pilot. So ask your instructor, hey, can I see the maintenance logbooks and can we kind of sort of see where these these inspections and and maintenance is signed off and what it looks like so you can get an idea of what to look for and what makes an aircraft airworthy to fly all right so if you're following along in the online ground school go ahead and take that quiz i wanted because we do have probably a little bit extra time here i want to go ahead and just quiz do a couple quiz questions for you guys over the audio ground school I haven't done this yet, but I think on some of these, I, I will do that. On some of these where we may have a little bit extra time, I think it could be fun. And these are a mix of FA written questions, questions that are actually on the FA written exam, and questions that I came up with myself to try and help engrave these things in your mind, enhance your ability to memorize them, and enhance your ability to understand them. So, first question is, who can perform the necessary actions to repair, replace, remove or deactivate equipment on an aircraft to clear it for flight. I'll say that again. Who can perform the necessary actions to repair, replace, remove or deactivate equipment on an aircraft to clear it for flight? A, a certified mechanic, B, a private pilot or C, the owner and operator. Okay, once again, uh, I'm just going to say it one more time because we are on audio and I want to give you time to think. Who can perform the necessary actions to repair, replace, remove, or deactivate equipment on an aircraft to clear it for flight? A, a certified mechanic. B, a private pilot. Or C, an owner or operator. And that would be A, a certified mechanic. Remember, we talked about private pilots are allowed to do preventative maintenance. And we'll get into this in a later episode some of examples of what preventative maintenance are but we talked about you know sort of using the words in the fars to show that you know deactivating something or replacing something would not be termed preventative it's not a preventative action it's more reactive than it is preventative so this sort of job would be need to be done by a certified mechanic and signed off in the logbook all right let's do another one Let's say, okay, here's a good one. After checking all applicable sources for required equipment, you determine the inoperative equipment in your aircraft is not required. You should now, A, have the equipment repaired, deactivate the equipment and mark it as inoperative or completely remove the equipment. B, fly, it isn't required so you are good to go. Or C, have the equipment removed. Again, after checking all applicable sources for required equipment, you determine the inoperative equipment on your aircraft is not required. So you should now, I'll give you guys a little bit of time to think. The options were you should now have the equipment repaired, 
deactivate the equipment and mark it as an operative or completely remove it or B, fly, it isn't required and you're good to go. Or C, have the equipment removed. All right, so the answer is A, have the equipment repaired, deactivate the equipment, and mark it as an operative or completely remove the equipment. You can't fly with an operative equipment unless you do one of those three things. So option B does not work. And then C is have the equipment removed. That would work but it's not the best answer. And this is, again, a tip for the FAA written. Sometimes there will be multiple answers that are technically correct, but there will be one that is more correct than the others. I know that's annoying, but so have the equipment removed would meet that requirement because it's one of those options, but answer A gives says all the options. So it's more specific answer and it's a more correct answer. All right, let's do one more. There's nine of these total in the online ground school so you can go and do all of these but I just want to give you guys a couple of them here let's see here okay if your aircraft is safe for flight with the existence of inoperable equipment that is required for flight what is the one way you are still allowed to fly the aircraft a the flight is less than 30 nautical miles B a certified mechanic signs the aircraft logbook declaring the aircraft is still safe for flight or C you obtain a special flight permit from the governing FISDO or IFO. Again, if your aircraft is safe for flight with the existence of inoperable equipment that is required for flight, what is one way you are still allowed to fly the aircraft? All right, so the answer is C, you obtain a special flight permit from the governing FISDO or IFO. The keyword here is required equipment. I don't know if you caught that. If the equipment was not required, a mechanic could just repair the equipment or remove it and sign it off on a logbook and you would be good to go. But so, but even though, let's say it wasn't, what, say this question said it wasn't required, it was not required. Option B said a certified mechanic says signs the aircraft logbook declaring the aircraft still safe for flight. I mean, that just says they're just sign, signing the logbook and saying it's safe for flight. You can't just do that. You have to have some sort of action. So even, as we've talked about, even if it wasn't required, they would still have to remove it, deactivate it, and mark it as an op, or repair it. So even if it didn't say required, option B would still not work. Option A says the flight is less than 30 nautical miles. That has nothing to do with it. And since this is required equipment, the only way to fly is by a special flight permit. The required equipment, again, would, would, might make it a little harder to get a special flight permit, but you can get a special flight permit for inoperable equipment that is either required or not required. So still have to get a special flight permit anytime something is inoperable if you want to fly it somewhere to get it fixed. All right, so like I said, there's nine more questions. So if you're following along, go do those quiz questions and check those out. So let's move on to lesson five of this section, the last lesson on airworthiness directives. But before we do that, let's take a quick break for something that you guys might want to hear. Hey pilots, it's Nick here from Part-Time Pilot. Did you guys know that you didn't have to spend 
$1,200 or $1,000 or even $600 to get your very own pair of headsets. Now, when I first heard of core headsets, core aviation headsets, I heard from a friend. I had to check them out myself because he said he only got them for $100. And at the time, I was borrowing from a pair of David Clarks from my flight school. And I was borrowing these broken down. They, they always had issues and they were always sweaty from the previous student. So I was very curious. I ended up getting gifted a pair of Bose headsets, a $1,200 pair of Bose headsets. But I still wanted to check out a pair of core aviation headsets. And I was super amazed at the amount it compared to my expensive Bose headsets. And it made me think, you know, I was gifted those Bose headsets, but I would never have, especially as a student pilot, bought something so expensive at the beginning of my training career. So these are the perfect flight headsets for a student pilot or a private pilot. And you can get the P1 version at coreheadset.com. You get a P1 version for $109.99 right now. They're having a sale. and Or you can get their KA1 version, which I just bought another pair because I want to see what kind of updates they've made even though my previous ka ones are still working today after three years and i've never had one single com failure with them anyways the ka ones are also on sale on one at 194.99 you can get your brand new quality headsets and it even comes with a five-year warranty and then the best part about all of this is i already told you it's on sale and they have free shipping but you can get an additional 10 percent off if you use the coupon code part-time pilot that's part-time pilot with no spaces. Use the coupon code to get 10% off free shipping plus the sale that they're already having for your very own quality pair of headsets that I myself recommend, highly, highly recommend for a beginner headset student pilot. So go check that out at coreheadset.com. That's core with a K, K-O-R-E-H-E-A-D-S-E-T. That's coreheadset.com and use the coupon code part-time pilot. I'll also put a link in the show notes. All right, so back to lesson five, airworthiness directives. An airworthiness directive is a notice by the FAA that defines an unsafe condition that commonly occurs in an aircraft type and prescribes appropriate corrective actions. Airworthiness directives for your aircraft must be met in order for your aircraft to be considered airworthy. Proof of compliance should be documented in the aircraft maintenance records. Before every flight, USPIC must ensure that the aircraft is airworthy and under compliance of all ADs. ADs can be normal or emergency issuance. Okay, so I'm going to repeat a couple things here about airworthiness directives that I have bolded in the online ground school and they're bolded for a reason and that is because you might be asked to, you might be asked about them. Airworthiness directives for your aircraft must be met in order for your aircraft to be airworthy. Proof of compliance should be documented in the aircraft maintenance records. All right, so airworthiness directives can be normal or emergency issuance. They may also be what we call recurring or one time. A recurring AD airworthiness directive must be met on a recurring basis according to the AD. For example, an AD may specify that a certain brand of tubing be replaced every 100 hours of use. That is a recurring 
sort of directive that you have to meet. Every 100 hours of use for that tube, you got to replace it. That's a recurring thing. A one-time AD is just like it sounds. For example, an AD may specify to replace all models of a certain altimeter. So it might just be like they might have found some defect that makes this altimeter or whatever instrument we're talking about. This is just an example, but makes this specific instrument no longer applicable for use or able to be used. And so they just say it's a one-time thing. You've got to replace this part, and it's just a one-time. As soon as you replace it, you've met the AD. There's no recurring nature to it. Let's do it another example. If an AD is issued for all PA-28-161 aircraft, Piper Cherokee Warriors, that use a specific brand, let's call it XYZ, of alternator belts and says that they must be replaced every six months in order to be compliant with the AD. In this example, if your aircraft uses alternator brand XYZ, you must replace it every six months and you must record this in the aircraft maintenance logbooks every time you do it and sign it off. And then that is your way to make sure that you're complying with this AD. You'll have the AD in your logbook that says brand XYZ must be replaced every six months. And then every six months, you would see a note from the certified mechanic that says replaced brand XYZ and signed it and dated it. Alternatively, you could use a different brand, let's say brand ABC, that is not part of the AD and not have to worry about replacing it every six months because it's only specific to brand XYZ. Unless, of course, brand ABC had its own AD or was also included in that airworthiness directive. So if that airworthiness directive said brands XYZ and ABC, then obviously you can't, you would have to comply and replace ABC as well every six months. But let's say you just decide, you say, okay, I don't want to do that every six months, so I'm going to get brand ABC. You should check and make sure that that brand also does not have an airworthiness directive. If you have not replaced alternator, alternator belt brand XYZ in the last six months, and one day, so it, if, it, if it goes over six months and one day, then your aircraft is no longer airworthy and cannot be flown. So it's six months. Any time after that, if you haven't replaced it, you're not considered airworthy. So it depends on what the AD says. It'll be specific. It'll say six months. It'll say 100 hours, something like that to make it recurring, and you have to comply with the specific details within the AD itself. There may also be the case where the AD explicitly states that you are allowed to fly the aircraft even if your aircraft is not in compliance with the AD. What? <laughs> For example, an AD might state that you are required to replace a specific part on your aircraft but, it, but that you may fly the aircraft until a specific date or until a specific amount of hours have been flown. They may allow you to fly the aircraft because they want you to be able to get the aircraft to the point where the repairs are to be made, among other reasons. So there still might be an AD that allows you some time before you have to make a change or something like that. So really, it, it's all about what's in the AD. You've got to read and understand the AD. And if you have any exam uh, questions on it, you can call your, your local flight service district office, your FISDO. Now, again, this stuff as a student pilot, you don't have to know these details. I will review what we do need to remember as a student pilot. But if you're a student pilot out there or a private pilot who wants to buy your own plane, and you have to start thinking about these things to keep your aircraft airworthy, then this is you'll have to know this stuff. And as a student pilot, it is good to know this stuff. And you might be asked about it on your check ride. 
So to summarize, you cannot fly an aircraft unless it is in compliance with an AD or if the AD gives you a particular exception for flight. A couple things to just review once again about ADs. You, you must, they must be met in, for, in order for your aircraft to be considered airworthy. The proof of compliance should be documented in the aircraft's maintenance records. And airworthiness directors can be recurring or one time. Okay, so that is the lesson on airworthiness directives. Let's do just a couple quiz questions, and then we'll call it a day for this lesson. All right, question number one. May a pilot operate an aircraft that is not in compliance with an airworthiness directive? A, no. B, yes, ADs are only voluntary. Or C, yes, if allowed by the AD. Again, may a pilot operate an aircraft that is not in compliance with an airworthiness directive? A, no. B, yes, ADs are only voluntary. Or C, yes, if allowed by the AD. So this is a confusing question, and it's another question that you'll see on the FA written, you might see on the FA written, and it's another one where there's sort of two answers that are technically right, but there's one that, again, is more right than the other. And you want to always select the one that is more the most right. So a pilot may operate an aircraft that is not in compliance with an airworthiness directive. No, right? You have to meet an airworthiness directive. You have to be in compliance with airworthiness directive. So option A, no, that is the obvious choice. But then if you read option C, yes, if allowed by the AD, they put on that extra bit of information that says yes, but only if allowed by the AD. So that implies that no, you can't if it's not allowed by the AD. So it includes sort of option A and gives a little bit more details. Option C would be the most correct answer. You can, but only if it's allowed by the AD. Otherwise, no. So that's all baked into answer C, and that is the most correct answer. All right, next question. Which records or documents shall the owner or operator of an aircraft keep to show compliance with an applicable airworthiness directive? A, aircraft maintenance records. B, airworthiness certi cert certification and pilot operating handbook. Or C, airworthiness and registration certificates. Which records or documents shall the owner or operator of an aircraft keep to show compliance with applicable ADs? A, aircraft maintenance records. B, airworthiness certificate and pilot operating handbook. Or airworthiness and registration certificates. The answer is option A aircraft maintenance records. An airworthiness directive is a notice by the FAA that defines an unsafe condition that commonly occurs in an aircraft type and describes the appropriate corrective actions. Airworthiness directives for aircraft must be met in order for your aircraft to be considered airworthy and proof of compliance should be documented in the aircraft maintenance records before every flight. You should, as a PIC, ensure the aircraft is airworthy and under compliance of all ADs by checking those aircraft maintenance records. They will not be listed on the airworthiness or registration certificates, and they won't be in the POH of the aircraft because that was created prior to, likely prior to those ADs coming out. So any, those ADs are going to be documented in the aircraft maintenance records and not those other things. All right, thank you guys for listening to episode 16 of the Audio Ground School podcast. That finishes section four on aircraft, air, aircraft airworthiness requirements. 
now getting into one of the bigger sections, section five, weather theory, charts, and information. We'll start off with lesson one on thunderstorms. Then we'll get into lesson two, air masses and weather systems. And those are two pretty big, pretty big lessons. So we'll probably do that next time and then we'll continue on from there. Again, thanks for listening and I'll see you in the skies. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times. And then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gain is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft they start making mistakes and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again and they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family they finally say you know what this has to stop we can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress you know and they end up quitting now so how do we avoid that well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized 
that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. When I say modern day student pilot, I just say modern day part-time student pilot. Because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices. Have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on online ground school, and we'll see you inside the online ground school. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.